Good morning. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here. Hallelujah. <laughs> I have the privilege of reading the Word of God this morning. My name is Miriam, and it's from John chapter 13, verses 21 through 35. So you can follow along as I read. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as G Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And now I will pray for Pastor Robin. Oh, Father, we just come before you in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we're just so blessed and so happy that we can be here today and we can hear your word and Father, I lift up Pastor Robin to you right now, God. I ask that your Holy Spirit would be upon him. I ask that your anointing would be upon him. Lord, I pray that God, as he speaks, that God, your word would come forth, Lord, the message that you've put on his heart. And God, your word is sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides the spirit from the soul and the, and, the, and the bone from the marrow. So, Lord, I thank you that, God, your word is not going to return void today. It's going to do what it's meant to do. And, God, I pray that all the people would just receive it into their hearts. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So a couple of personal notes. Um, I'm really glad that I thought maybe I should get up and say something as well about the Queen. Then realized I was bawling my eyes out in the front front row. Um, that probably wasn't going to be wise. Um, and uh, yes, this is the new me. <laughs> no glasses. Uh, thank you for your prayers. 
for me. Um, uh, the I, I, for for those who don't know, I had um, cataract surgery about ten days ago, and uh, so yeah, things are going well. Um, as I like to tell people, the old software is still catching up with the new hardware. Uh, new hardware being lenses in my eyes, software being my brain. Uh, so sadly, my yeah, my brain is all. I've been wearing glass. I've been wearing glasses since I was five. So like 61 years, my brain has been used to glasses. So it's taking a while to get used to things. But I can, I, I can read my sermon fine, so we're good, right? <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah. yeah. Our initial experiences when we first come to faith often have a deep forming effect on our later walk with God. I have a pastor friend in Canada who's a little bit older than I am who really loves the Gathers. That's an American family vocal group. Um, but he, he shared this in the church and said, but I'm not going to impose them upon you. Um, but because that, he really loved them to a great extent because that was the music that he was exposed to when he first believed. I know what that feels like. A while ago, I came across some early Jesus music from the, from the 70s. On the internet, for those of you from that period, that would be Michael O'Martian, second chapter of Acts. One of my favorites is a lesser-known band. It's called Sea Wind from Hawaii. They're awesome. Anyway, um, I realized how deeply embedded in my soul that music is. Now, this is an opinion piece. I actually think that music was better as well. <laughs> that could just be a function of my age. However... There is a study on the internet which take, looks, looks at the Spotify profiles. You know, Spotify does profiles for each things. It looks at Spotify profiles of the, the top summer hits of the last four decades. And the music of the 80s and 90s was certainly much more diverse in the last couple of decades, which is pretty much almost like a you know, production line. You're open to your own opinion on that. <laughs> okay. But in, this, in the same way that... Um, the music of our conversion embeds itself in our souls. Each of us has a unique story about how we came to faith. And that, also, that story often continues to shape our perspective into the present. Now, some of you were born into Christian families and you never knew a time when you didn't know that God loved you and that Jesus died for you. Even if at some point you had to come to a decision that you would embrace that for yourself as an adult. Others came from the opposite extreme. And the news that there is a God, let alone one that loves you and died for you, broke in on your world like a tsunami. Some of you were gradually argued into faith, each objection in turn falling before the truth of the gospel until you finally put your faith in Jesus. For others, it was more like falling head over heels in love. And one glimpse of God's amazing love was enough to ravish your heart and turn you into a follower of Jesus. For me, it was community. I might get emotional. Maybe not. We'll see. Um, I'm kind of notorious or whatever the right word is for that. Um, I was a very lonely, isolated teenager and an atheist. When I came into contact with a circle of pe people my own age 
who welcomed me in and cared for me in a way that no one had before. It was a time of the Jesus people. And looking back on those last couple of years in high school, I realize now that there was something of a revival going on in my hometown. All kinds of people were getting saved in all kinds of ways. You'd go to the pubs and there'd be guys from my high school standing outside the pub, witnessing to people who they used to drink with in the pub as they came out of the pub, that kind of stuff. Um, after I came to faith, like many of my contemporaries at the period, I was drawn to communal living and I spent a number of years living in what you would now call an intentional community. I think it was Henry Nouwen who said that Christian community is where you always find yourself living alongside that one person you would never choose to live with. If you had a choice, you would never be anywhere near that person. And yet there they are, as a constant reminder, that it is only by the grace of God that we can be a community at all. That might be why the New Testament is full of instructions to new communities of incredibly diverse people on how they should now to live together as a community of God. Many of those instructions include one Greek word, alelon, which is usually translated into English as one another or each other. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of those one another's in the New Testament. And I've called the series One Anothering, which isn't really a word, but you can do that in English, right? Um, gets the idea across. So we won't be looking at all of the one another's, uh, because depending on how you count, uh, there could be anything between 30 to 50 of them uh, in the New Testament. Um, there's in places where we're told to either do something to one another or to have a particular attitude towards one another. Of course, some of them are repetition, repetitions. That's why you get different count, right? Uh, some of the repetitions were actually told to greet each other with a holy kiss four times in the New Testament. You can do with that what you like. Some come bundled together under a larger heading. Over the next month or so, I'm going to be covering some of what I think are the main themes. Jesus had a lot to say about loving people. He quoted Deuteronomy and Leviticus to teach that we should love the Lord our God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 5, he expands that. He says, verse 43, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Those two passages cover just about everybody. Love God, love your neighbor, love your enemy. Some people would include loving yourself in there. Um, there's a category actually between loving God and loving your neighbor. And that category is covered in John, this passage in John 13. I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So if you think of the way that we love people in a set of concentric circles, on the outside circle is the one with our enemies, people who are opposed to us in some way, people who might want to hurt us if they get a chance. Next circle inside that, we could include our neighbors, people we live with, work with, side by side. We share something in common with them. It could just be you know, where we live, it could be where we work, hobbies, interests we have. 
Then comes the circle of our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those that we would consider members of the same faith community, the same church or small group. These are the people the one another of the New Testament apply to. About that time in the late 70s, mid, mid to late 70s, when I first came to faith, Francis Schaeffer had written a book called The Mark of a Christian. In it, he argues that in this passage in John, particularly in verses 34 and 35, Jesus gives the world the right to judge the church. Basically, he says, if we don't fulfill this commandment, we have very little to say to the world. That's why I'm starting this series with this passage in John. It seems to me that this is the root passage on this topic in Jesus' teaching, out of which grow all the other commands. In letters of Paul, John, Peter, James, the book of Hebrews, that's about covers all the, all the writers of the New Testament outside the Gospels. So this thing about how we treat each other is not just an isolated issue. It's central to what it means to live as a Christian, which is why it's our core texts series for this year. For those of you who are new, which is generally speaking close to a third of the congregation any, any given Sunday morning, um, uh, every year I aim to preach on one of what I call core texts, passages of scripture that, in my opinion at least, are central to our faith as Christians. So in 2002, we looked at Jesus' I am statements in the Gospel of John. Last year, we looked at the Ten Commandments. This year, we're looking at the one another passages in the New Testament. So let's look at what Jesus has to say about loving one another here. It's actually a very intimate scene. Jesus, Jesus and his disciples have been having a meal together. In fact, it would turn out to be their last meal together. And he has a lot to say to his disciples, but he waits until Jesus, Judas goes out to betray him before he starts speaking. When he does start, he goes on for four chapters. It's the largest chunk of Jesus' speech that we have anywhere in Scripture. So Jesus' betrayer has just left the table to betray him. And Jesus is concerned for his disciples. He knows that in the next few days, it will be very hard for them. They'll be tempted to betray one another. In another place, he says that the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. He needs to leave them with some basic instructions that will mean a difference between surviving and not surviving. What's the first thing he says to them? Love one another as I have loved you. Not make sure you tell everybody about me. Not make sure you have all your doctrine straight about me, because that's going to take a long time. <laughs> Not even if you come from a Presby Scottish Presbyterian background, make sure you do all things in an orderly fashion. No, the first thing he starts off with is, love one another as I have loved you. And it obviously made an impact. So much so, that the apostles clearly thought it was pretty close to the core of Jesus' teaching about how we should relate to each other because they refer back to it again and again. Romans 13, 8. Let no debt remain, remain outstanding except a continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. 
Hebrews 13.1, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. 1 Peter 1.22, now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth, so you have a sincere love for, one, for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. 1 John 3.11, this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. 1 John 3.23, and this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. He mentions it, John mentions it three more times in 1 John 4, then in 2 John 1.5, I am not writing a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. For the writers of the New Testament, Clearly, this was a core teaching. This was a non-negotiable. And Jesus tells us to love one another. And then just in case we're not sure what that looks like, he adds, as I have loved you. Now, remember, Judas has just left a room to go and betray, betray Jesus to his death. The disciples didn't know that yet, but Jesus knew. And yet he continued to love Judas, even as he rejected him. He loved Judas all the time, despite knowing that he would reject him. I think this might be what makes it a new commandment, not so much that we should love one another, but the way that we should love one another. It's normal for people to care for those close to them. You may not like them at first, but gradually you learn to care for them. Our marriage is a classic example of that. <laughs> Meryl and I really didn't like each other. I'll tell you the story. I wasn't sure I was going to tell you. I'll tell you the story. Okay, so we were in community. We were living in community uh, in a training center in the Netherlands. Most of us, well, it was a large range of ages, but the bulk of us were in our 20s and 30s. And so there was a bunch of us sitting around. There was a... 150 people, right, in the community. So we all ate meals together. And so after dinner one evening, there was a bunch of us sitting around the table, maybe eight or ten of us, and just talking. And the, the, uh, the topic turned to when I get married, okay, because we're all single, you know, when I get married. And so people were going, well, going around the table going, well, when I get married, blah, 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 right? And I guess it came to my turn, and I started off, when I get married, and Marilyn distinctly remembers thinking to herself, who in the world would marry him? <laughs> <laughs> we really didn't like each other. <laughs> but then we were on the same ministry team for two years, and dislike changed to toleration. <laughs> and toleration changed to friendship. And friendship changed to love. And we've been married now for 42, 41 years. <laughs> Always check. Always check. <laughs> People tend to grow on you. And if they don't, we often change our situations so we don't have to deal with them. All right? How many people have lost, left a job, a church, or a team because they just couldn't get on with someone else. Many of us are aware of the research that shows that the most common reason for cross-cultural workers leaving the field isn't difficulty with the language, isn't cross-cultural stress, or dealing with the climate, or living conditions. The number one reason why people leave the field is because of stress and conflict with colleagues. 
Leaving is one situation, one solution. But Jesus would much rather that we learn to love one another as he has loved us. So how has he loved us? Well, you all know the texts. God so loved the world that he sent his only, one and only son, that who should ever believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And of course, that passage in Philippians begins with the words, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The passage in John 13 that we're looking at, Jesus had just finished washing the disciples' feet. Romans 5.10 says he died for us even when we were his enemies. In Ephesians 5, when Paul is speaking to husbands about how they should relate to their wives, he says, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We tend to focus on those passages quite often in terms of the way they describe Jesus' love, his humility, his self-sacrifice. But he says that we're supposed to love others the way that he has loved us. So it's also a model in the New Testament for us to emulate. We are to love one another as Jesus has loved us. So what does it mean to love one another as Jesus has loved us? It doesn't mean that we have nice, warm, gushy feelings for one another. That's not really what he's talking about here. It actually goes beyond the kind of love that we have for one another that's found in a family or the affection you have for your friends. Sometimes you love your friends more because you get to choose your friends, right? <laughs> to love each other as Christ has loved us is to pour out our lives in self-sacrifice, self-sacrificial service for one another. It's to choose the best for our brother or sister, even when it costs you something yourself. Theologians have called it disinterested benevolence. That means kindness to others without any thought of benefit to yourself. For those of us from North America, it means giving a gift even if you don't get a tax receipt for it. <laughs> That's what Jesus calls us to. He essentially says, you have seen now how I lived, now go and do likewise. I'm not going to spend a lot, long time this morning filling out the practical meaning of loving one another, mainly because I think the other one another passages that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks do a really good job of that. I do want to take a look at the second part of this, um, what Jesus says, though. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In some ways, this is the really scary part. If it weren't bad enough that Jesus expects love, us to love people like he did, people who often aren't really that particularly likable, um, well, I know some people feel that way about me. Uh, now he says that this is the way that people outside the church will know that we are his disciples. That calls for the question, 
Can people look in on our relationships and see the love of Jesus shown in such a way that they are forced to admit that we follow him and that has made a difference in our lives? As an international church with people from many different backgrounds, culturally, socially, economically, theologically, politically, you name it, we've got it all here. Um, We have a great opportunity to demonstrate what it means to love one another as Christ has loved us. And this has always been an important part of being a believer. Tertullian in the second century reported the pagans of his day saying about Christians, see how they love one another, how ready they are to die for one another. The Athenian orator Aristides, also in the second century, wrote this to the Roman Emperor Hadrian, who, I I have to confess, Hadrian seemed to have been quite the tourist. Everywhere you go, there's a gate or a wall named after him. (laughs) Anyway, he wrote, I don't know where Hadrian was, when he he was probably, you know, galvanting off somewhere, you know, looking at another gate that had been built for him. He, He writes to Hadrian, the Christians know and trust God. They placate those who oppress them and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Their wives are absolutely poor and their daughters modest. Their men abstain from unlawful marriage and are free from all impurity. All of them have bondwomen or children. If, sorry, if any of them have bondwomen or children, they persuade them to become Christians for the love they have towards them. And when they have become so, they call them without distinction brothers. They love one another. They do not refuse to help the widows. They rescue the orphan from him who does him violence. He who has gives ungrudgingly to him who has not. If they see a stranger, they take him to their dwellings and rejoice over him as over a real brother. For they do not call themselves brothers after the flesh, but after the spirit and in God. If anyone among them is poor and needy and they do not have food to spare, they fast for two or three days that they may supply him with necessary food. They scrupulously obey the commands of their Messiah. Every morning and every hour, they thank and praise God for his loving kindness towards him. I'm not sure if that, if someone was looking at my life that they would describe me that way. I aspire to that. I ask God's grace to live in that way because we're all on the journey of growth. But that's, that's something powerful to aspire to. When Meryl and I were first met, we were part of a creative ministry team in the Netherlands. That was that two years where it went from dislike to toleration, right? Um, so every weekend we would go out and we'd sing and dance and perform dramas on, this is the 70s, sing and dance and perform dramas on the streets, in churches and coffee bars. Um, I remember one evening we were in a coffee bar and one of our team got up to sing a solo and it was terrible. Um, Now, John is normally a really good singer, but that evening he was not on form and he left the microphone obviously upset. The rest of the team just naturally gathered around him to encourage him. Later in the weekend, one of the leaders from the coffee bar ministry came up to us and told us that our loving response to John's failure has spoken more deeply to them about what it meant to be a Christian than anything we had said that weekend. 
the reality is if we do things authentically out of love, they impact people in all kinds of ways that we just cannot imagine. I'm not talking about how we relate to the world here. This has nothing to do with serving others or sharing the gospel. This is about the internal dynamics of our own community. This is about being a loving community where people care for one another in practical ways. I think people are often tired, overworked, stressed out. It's easy under those conditions to cut corners on loving one another. But that really isn't an option. Because we have all the resources we need to live the way Jesus calls us to. The Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. He is at work in my life. He is at work in your lives. And his job is to shape us all into little Jesuses so that we really can love one another as he has loved us. So if you're struggling with loving people around you, maybe it's because you're trying to do it in your own strength rather than the strength that Jesus gives us through his spirit. So I want to encourage you this week to take some time to pray about it and ask the Lord to give you the grace to love the difficult people in your lives. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, you have given us a high calling. You have called us to love one another as you have loved us. That model of self-sacrificial love for one another, self-sacrificial service for one another, is a high calling, Lord. And it's something that we cannot attain to by ourselves. It's only by your grace and through your spirit, Lord, that we have any hope of doing that. But Lord, we do pray that we would be a community that is marked by love one for another. That, like Aristides, an external observer, could see the way we live and wonder at it and recognize that you are the one that we serve. Lord, we pray for that grace today and each day going forward from here. That as a community together, we would truly reflect your character, your love. Lord, we pray this, this morning for all those affected by the death of Queen Elizabeth II. I want to particularly pray for the royal family, Lord. Lord, 